собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели к нам момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. To close out the year, the next two podcasts will be talks by Mark Steinberg and Anne Gerrels, respectively, that they both gave at the University of Pittsburgh this fall as part of the Center for Russian and East European Studies 1917 Centenary Series. Mark's talk, The Russian Revolution as Utopian Leap into the Air of History, was given on October 13th at the University of Pittsburgh. Mark Steinberg is a professor of Russian history at the University of Illinois. He's the author of many wonderful books, including Proletarian Imagination, Self, Modernity, and the Sacred in Russia, 1910-1925, Voices of Revolution, 1917, Petersburg Fendisiekel, and with Nicholas Rezanovsky, A History of Russia, now in its eighth edition. His most recent book is The Russian Revolution, 1905-1921, to published by Oxford University Press. Here's Mark Steinberg on The Russian Revolution as Utopian Leap into the Air of History. In thinking about the revolution, about belief, but a whole lot more, I find myself sort of obsessed with an image that most of you probably have seen before. Paul Clay's 1920 monoprint called Angelus Novus, uh, and even more so, because uh, it's how I know, know the print, uh, Walter Benjamin's very famous, overly analyzed 1940 interpretation of uh, this uh, image. And frankly, it's not just me who's obsessed with this, Benjamin himself was obsessed with this, uh, with this image from, from, 20, from 1920. Um, and especially as he struggled, as I do, as many of us do, to understand the movings and workings of history, to think about temporality itself uh, and revolution and possibility, he was fascinated by the potential interpretive power of this uh, image. So much so he actually bought the painting hung it on the wall of every single apartment where he ever lived, uh, and wrote about it more than once with, with a number of different conclusions. Uh, his most famous interpretation in 1940, uh, the very year he soon uh, uh, fled Europe to escape from the Nazis when he had nowhere left uh, to stay, which of course, as many of you may know, ended in his suicide while trying to leave Europe, figuring he was going to be sent back to occupied France. In this essay, and you see the quotes from some of it that are quite famous, described the Angelus Novus as a symbol of history, uh, especially history's ultimately catastrophic drive forward. A and as he tells us, the angel's face and body uh, is turned toward the past and actually toward us. And a storm, Benjamin says, blowing from paradise, a storm we call progress, drives 
him, the angel, irresistibly into the future. And this is how one pictures the angel of history, Benjamin says, in, our, in lines that are absolutely among his most uh, quoted. Uh, where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. Now this image, uh, and Benjamin's rather pessimistic comments about the nature of history and its directions uh, and consequences lead me to the Russian Revolution, but in a rather strange and actually overly literal uh, way, though I'm going to become less literal as time goes on. Namely, I want to talk about and think about uh, with you winged angels in the Russian Revolution. Angels of the new, angels of revolution, angels of belief in the possibility, in Benjamin's words, of awakening the dead and making whole what has been smashed. In other words, of redeeming history from a, a long line of wreckage through the possibility of a new time and a new uh, world. Now, when we think about the Russian Revolution, we don't usually think a lot about angels. And yet, as it turns out, uh, and some of you may know, the iconography of the revolution, especially during its approach uh, and in its very first years, was surprisingly full of angels and other winged figures and flying, actually. For example, since we're talking about anniversaries, the first anniversary of at least the October uh, Revolution. Uh, in Petrograd, uh, the main stage of the revolution, public art to celebrate this first anniversary included numerous winged figures, as you see some of them here, often blowing trumpets, uh, presumably sounding some sort of victory, uh, but also like the archangels uh, Michael and Gabriel, presumably sounding the last judgment, the final defeat of evil, resurrection salvation. In Moscow, as part of Lenin's big monumental propaganda uh, project for the new capital, the government held a competition to design a plaque, a memorial plaque, that would go up on the Kremlin wall, the outside, on the Senate Tower, facing Red Square, overlooking the graves of the people who died during the October Revolution, and eventually looking right at Lenin's mausoleum, though Lenin didn't know that yet, may not even have wanted it. Uh, and what you're looking at is the winning entry, uh, uh, done by a sculptor named Sergei Konyonkov. It was unveiled uh, in the presence of leaders of the party and state, including Lenin, uh, at the first anniversary celebration of November 7th, 1918. Uh, and as you can see, at the very center of this figure is a, a large, uh, this, this bas-relief plaque. You can see a picture of it hanging on the Senate Tower with all the notables gathered there. Um, what you see at the center is a very large figure, suitably ambiguous in gender, like angels often are, with, you can almost not tell because they're so huge, huge white wings. This figure is wearing a crown of leaves, maybe palms. The sun is rising uh, behind. Uh, this figure holds in uh, his or her left uh, hand a palm branch, of course a familiar symbol of all sorts of things, martyrdom, victory, heaven, uh, and of course a red banner in the other, also a symbol of revolution, of socialism, but especially of martyrdom, of the death of the blood of those who have fallen in the fight for revolution, which is what this is a memorial plaque over. At the, feet's figure, at, at the figure's feet, 
You can see swords and weapons, you, more or less. One might say wreckage, but a different sort of wreckage than Benjamin's, a sort of happy wreckage. Uh, and behind you see the rising sun, which spells out the words October 1917 revolution in the rays of the sun. And the, the, the plaque is inscribed to those who fell in the struggle for the peace and brotherhood of peoples. Not coincidentally, it was glazed by the sculpture to match the colors of the cupolas of St. Basil's Cathedral, which is just off to the angel's right. Now, the ceremony that uh, dedicated this work include the singing of a cantata uh, performed by a proletkult working class choir, written collectively, you wouldn't have one person write such a thing, collectively by three working class poets associated with the proletkult, and it was simply called the cantata. And with Konyonkov's um, sort of I'll call it Angel of Revolution. He never called it that. Um, behind them, behind this choir, and the revolutionary dead lying at their feet, buried, the choir sang of, frankly, you can see some of the words crucifixion, of resurrection, with words like some of the ones you see here, come down from the cross, crucified people, be transformed, roar land with the final storm, let a new day shine in the azure, the old world transfigured. Frankly, in those times, such words didn't shock anybody. Well, they actually troubled Lenin a little bit. But most people considered them actually quite normal for how people talked about the meaning of the revolution. In fact, it turns out, in terms of the image itself, that other proposals for the memorial also featured winged figures. It wasn't surprising that one would be chosen. That's what many people suggested. Now, if we look further back, we can see that there's a fairly well-established Russian revolutionary literary tradition, uh, very strong among working class authors, of linking revolutionary change, transcendence of the world as it is, universal emancipation, to metaphors of flight and wings. So this isn't so surprising. For example, to give a few uh, examples, for, but very few. In January of 1914, uh, the trade union paper, the most important political uh, trade union in Russia, the Union of Metal Workers, uh, published a poem by its president, the union president, Alexei Gastyev, who you most, many of you know from later work he did, um, with lines like these. Higher still, yet higher, in the smoke of victory, we dash from the highest rocks, from the most treacherous cliffs, to the most distant heights. We have no wings, we will. They will be born in an explosion of burning wish. This is one of many examples I could give where images of flight and wings appear in revolutionary poetry before uh, the, the revolution, during, during and before and after and during the war. In 1917, such imagery became even more uh, common. For example, in May of 1917, in the newspaper Diela Naroda, The People's Cause, uh, published by the Socialist Revolutionary Party, there was a poem by a worker poet named Pyotr uh, Aryeshin uh, talking about peasant revolution. He actually wasn't a peasant, he was a worker, but he embraced the peasant cause because he was an, an SR. Across fields I'm, f he later became a Bolshevik, across fields I'm flying on the fiery wings of time. Note both the wings and the fire and the time. I'll come back to that. From above hang fiery streaks. A pink glow towering round. Has not the firebird now at last embraced vast roost with her bloody wing? I know it's really terrible poetry, but it's actually really revealing intellectually. In the years after October, Wings in flight became even more common of a trope in uh, uh, radical writing. 
uh, and I would say thinking. And I, again, I could give many examples. I'll just give one. In 1919, a working class and Bolshevik poet named Vasily Alexandrovsky read at various public meetings a poem that was simply titled Wings. What more do you need to say? Krylia in which he describes, you can see some of the words here, the bloodshed of war and revolution being overcome when blood, the blood of all those who have fought in the revolution, uh, turns into lava, empowering lava, and everyone grows wings. Not unusual at all. Uh, by the way, it's worth noting, um, these revolutionary wings were made of various materials, uh, pure white feathers, as you saw in the in the sculpture on the Senate uh, Tower of iron. Can't imagine how you fly with iron wings, but there were airplanes, I guess. Uh, gold, and most commonly, fire. Uh, and this phrase, fire-winged, ognikrili, was one of the most favored adjectives in these years for writing about the revolution, especially in those first years. And there were, everything was described as fire-winged. You could have fire-winged books, and fire-winged people, and fire-winged factories, and, uh, and, of course, the fiery wings of time. So what's going on here? And how do I connect? I started with Benjamin, and then I've got images on the, on the, uh, hanging on walls, and then weird poetry. Think about flight and wings. There are a lot of, of course, classic symbolic meanings of what flight and wings mean across many cultures in the world, and they're often very similar. Knowledge, power, often the link between knowledge and power, uh, escape, from suffering, from evil, especially transcendence above the physical bonds and boundaries of the human condition. These are very common tropes. On the side of traditional religions, there's, of course, the very old iconography of Nike, the goddess of victory, which is all over Russia on various war monuments, including Soviet ones, uh, and the Christian iconography, of course, of angels, and especially, I think, of archangels, and everything that they, angels and archangels symbolize. The presence of God, you can understand metaphorically, the promise of salvation, the replacement, most importantly, I think, of ordinary time with a new messianic time, a time of revelation, a time of apocalyptic transformation of the world. Or from a less religious uh, side, or at least less traditional one, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was very influential among Russian intellectuals and radicalized workers before 1917 and after, uh, described his famous Superman, his most famous concept, which is often being cited by Russians, as, I quote, an enemy of the spirit of gravity, who would one day teach men to fly. This is ubiquitous in cultures. And of course, there is a rich Russian avant-garde uh, symbolist uh, tradition of imageries of wings as these uh, uh, images from Goncharova, uh, her wartime uh, set of images. You can see uh, Archangel's uh, 1925 book, Skriabin's, uh, about Skriabin, which of course has a winged figure on the front. I could go on and you'd be all falling asleep if I gave you all of these images. So what I, what I want to do, though, before returning to the Russian Revolution directly, back to the streets, uh, in fact, and to the experience of the revolution, is a tradition much closer to the beliefs of Russian revolutionaries. Yeah, they may be influenced by, all, by Nietzsche and by religion and by symbolism, but I want to just focus on Marxism, because this isn't that surprising either. In particular, the very important Marxist idea, most succinctly set down by Frederick Engels, who was wonderful at simplifying Marx for us, oversimplifying perhaps, that revolution, and this 
phrase becomes very famous, is humanity's leap from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. This idea would be repeated again and again and interpreted many times, including, see, I, I didn't forget him, Walter Benjamin. In the very same body of essays, known as On the Concept of History, but typically called the Theses on History, because uh, they're written in that manner, who also interpreted this phrase. Benjamin took it in a slightly different way and rephrased it uh, as revolution is a leap in the open air of history, phrase that's in the title of my talk. A leap, in other words, that offers humanity a momentary possibility, in his words, to blast open the continuum of history. In other words, there's a lot of ways to interpret anything Benjamin says, history as just step-by-step -step change. History as unending wreckage, to go back to that earlier image, all from the same essay. And to grasp the splinters and flashes of messianic time open towards the future. And this notion of a revolutionary leap from necessity to freedom was very strong in the world of belief of the Russian Revolution. In fact, it might be, uh, as Andrei Belitsky suggested in a whole book on this phrase, called Marxism and the Leap to the Kingdom of Freedom, it may be the idea that is at the very heart of Marxist theory of history and revolution, for Belitsky in an unfortunately negative way often. Uh, but Benjamin makes a very important slight variation on this idea, which I think takes us deeper into the experience and meaning of, the, of revolution not just the Russian Revolution, but that too. Marx and Engels, you'll notice in that phrase, emphasize the destination, the utopian kingdom of freedom, which, as Velitsky and many have pointed out, that can be a very dangerous faith if you know where you're going and you're determined to get there by any means uh, necessary. Benjamin, by contrast, emphasizes the leap itself in the free and open air of history, unter dem freien Himmel. Uh, the leap of momentary possibility. Now we know that this free air of historical possibility, uh, the leap of 1917, one might say, didn't stay free. Uh, Ernst Bloch, uh, another interesting Marxist, would put it in 1923 when he was revising his 1918 book, Spirit of Utopia, so he's now thinking back on what he had written, and he argues, doors opened, but of course they soon shut, thinking about what went on when he first wrote this book since then. But those shut doors should not cause us to forget those briefly opened possibilities, the momentary leap, the chance, as Benjamin says, to grasp at splinters and flashes of possibility of messianic time. Now, it's really easy to say in hindsight that all of their belief in possibility in 1917 and transforming the world in ending the wreckage of lives and overcoming the weight of necessity in creating a world of freedom, uh, and I'll come back, we can talk more about what freedom meant in 1917. One can easily say, well, it was impossible. It was just a utopian uh, dream. But I warn you, judging, possi judging possibilities and what could be from outcomes is a very false and dangerous logic that leads us away from understanding history itself. And you'll, you'll see what I mean, I think. Lots of philosophers have argued, uh, interesting philosophers, especially during and after the catastrophes of the 20th century, when it certainly looked even more than Benjamin understood in 1940 uh, about the wreckage of history. 
that the most human thing in the world is to believe the world can be different than the world given to us, especially when deep in our moral instincts we know it should be different. Bloch, back to Bloch, called this critical challenge to the given world a utopian impulse, hence my use of this term. And he says that it exists in all societies, an impulse, in his words, to venture beyond the darkness of the lived moment and discover an emerging not yet. And he spoke explicitly, as you can see here, to this question of possibility, noting that the ocean of possibility is greater than our customary land of reality. In other words, we live in the world of the present, the world of necessity, the world of expectations shaped out of our own experiences of what is rather than what could be. And therefore, he warns, we tend to mistake the not yet for the impossible. But it is possible not yet. Or to give one more philosophical twist and then return to the Russian Revolution, because you thought I forgot about it. Uh, in her 1961 essay, uh, and she even more knows some of the darkness of the 20th century, uh, an essay on what is freedom, she notes that every new beginning in, in human history, her words, breaks into the world as infinite in probability. And yet is precisely in this infinitely improbable it is precisely this infinitely improbable which constitutes the very texture of everything we call real, because she elaborates, you know, our very existence, Earth, humans, we shouldn't be here. The odds against us existing are, are very minuscule. And therefore, we as humans need to look for the for unforeseeable and unpredictable, to be prepared for and expect miracles in the political realm, even though the scales, she says, are weighted in favor of disaster. I think all of this helps us think about the meaning of 1917, including wings and angels and time and possibility. Back to the streets. In the days of freedom, uh, after the Tsar's overthrown, as many of you know, people talked about it is a time of miracles, literally often. Uh, they poured into the streets. People embraced and kissed strangers. Uh, according to the uh, well-known writer Viktor Shklovsky, he said it was just like Easter, a joyous, naive, disorderly carnival paradise. Here you see one of many Easter postcards from 1917. Uh, Easter, of course, happening in the spring of 1917. Uh, perfect timing, you know, where you combine the rising of Christ and salvation and the crowing of the new dawn and the freedom of Russia on a big red Easter egg. And there's a whole bunch of, uh, like uh, these. Or uh, an 18-year-old woman uh, working in a Moscow factory in 1917 who wrote that the revolution to me and my friends seemed like a wonderful holiday. We were happy. We felt like adults for the first time. There's a temporal issue there. For the first time, we felt completely free. Or, quickly, here's how an atmosphere felt to a journalist uh, writing in, the popular Mos in a very popular Moscow newspaper in March of 1917, Gazeta Kapieka. Uh, just a week after the Tsar abdicated, uh, and you can see most of this quote, no longer does, but all of this speaks to some of the philosophy I've been talking about, which was all written later. No longer does the vision of a new Russia appear as merely a future promise. It now appears as a real possibility, as a wide horizon. The great Russian revolution, it's already being so called, so quickly, so unexpectedly like oxygen to a dying man came to save the Russian people at the very moment when those in authority, frankly everybody, did not expect it. 
all revolutions come unexpectedly. Hannah Arendt would say they break into the world as infinite impossibility, infinite improbability. Marx and Benjamin would call them historical leaps. This is the real grandeur of their arrival. They are born spontaneously. They fly in like a hurricane, fly in like a hurricane, and tear out freedom for the exhausted people. As it was, so it shall be. And of course, many letters and petitions to authorities talked about the revolution as a sacred time, a time of miracle, a time of resurrection, a time of salvation, a springtime of freedom. In time, people would argue a lot about what freedom really meant. Did it mean liberation from constraints? Did it mean emancipating justice? Did it mean allowing individuals to pursue happiness? Did it mean guaranteeing the conditions for happiness? And in our discussion, if you want, we can, we can talk about the complex meanings of uh, freedom. But for now, the euphoria of the leap in the air of possibility was the greater feeling. In time, people would recognize they were stuck in the kingdom of necessity. That might be a simple description of much of what follows in Soviet history, as Sean and others have shown. But in 1917, and for some years following, it was the leap that defined their sense of the real. In other words, for a time, revolution was a winged leap, an opened door, a venturing beyond. Or in one of the metaphors worker authors loved, and I think maybe even more insightful, it was just like the flight of a meteor. Bright, inspiring, unforgettable, if momentary. Or perhaps like the flight of Icarus toward the sun. In Russia, we can find a lot of examples of this sort of revolutionary flight into the open air of possibility, uh, belief in the possibility of the infinitely improbable uh, new. For example, Lev Trotsky, uh, who continually told everybody he was not a utopian. In fact, he accused all of his enemies of being utopians because he defined utopia as fantasy rather than facts argued it was the worst sort of Philistinism, which there's no greater insult next to being called a utopian, worst sort of uh, Philistinism to think that the world as it is is the only world that could be. For example, in 1904, he criticized on the eve of the 1905 revolution, criticized Russian liberals for failing to understand that when the energies of the common people are aroused, quote, this is Trotsky, the incredible becomes real the impossible becomes believable. 20 years later, after a lot of struggle and a lot of blood and a lot of hard lessons taught him how dark the realities of history could be, and especially how dark human beings' reality could be, he wrote this about transforming the, what he called, physical and spiritual nature of the human person, which he said was the ultimate goal of communism, the music of the future. He recognized that it was impossible to imagine what has not yet been seen. For our vision is limited, as others have said, by the, our own horizons, by the world as it is. But he said, comrades, I'm willing to speculate, that's his word, on what the new human being of the communist future might look like. Man, he says, and you see the quote here, Chilevyek, the human person, will become incomparably stronger smarter and more subtle. His body will become more harmonized, his movements more rhythmic, his voice more musical. The average human type will rise to the heights of an Aristotle, a Goethe, or a Marx. And above this ridge, new peaks will rise. Or Alexandra Kollontai, uh, 
the only made woman active in the who was a commissar in the in the government, leader of the women's section of the Communist Party, was probably the Marxist most interested in the project of creating the new person, which was widely uh, discussed, and especially the new woman. During the 1905 revolution, she wrote two essays on morality and socialism, in which she argued the future can't be imagined. They all, the deepest thinkers among them, understand that. But she was certain that the, in a renewed social atmosphere of the future, a higher moral type of person, this she says, these are her words, will see a higher moral type of person now inaccessible to us. And when you get society beyond competing individuals and antagonistic classes, then will emerge the new person who she described as the harmonious, whole, strong, and beautiful image of the true Superman. She's, of course, using Nietzsche's phrase. Belief, she believed, she believed, she argued, in this still unimaginable future was itself, belief itself, was essential to our capacity to make that possibility real. Uh, women, she wrote in a 1908 book on the working class woman in modern society, who, quote, do not feel a strong faith in the coming of a more perfect social order, unquote, suffer for not believing in it, suffer from their narrow view of what is real and possible. To them, her words now, the future of humanity must seem gray, dark, and hopeless. To be sure, she said, you can only catch pale, catch sight of pale glimmerings of the future, but those glimmerings were the force, the inspiration, the power that allowed one to dare to leap toward possibility, toward the revolutionary new, to believe, indeed to know, that the improbable, how infinitely improbable, did not mean the impossible. Still, she recognized, as others did too, that the modern experience is fundamentally tragic. That's the word she used uh, in an essay on, she wrote in 1911 on the new morality, which was republished without changes uh, in 1918. But precisely because reality is tragic, or Hannah Arendt would say the scales are weighted in favor of disaster, Humans feel a natural and realistic uh, longing, Tosca, this is uh, uh, her phrase, Kalantai's phrase, longing for the ideal of the still unrealized future. For Bloch, of course, this is the universal utopian uh, impulse. In 1923, uh, in her famous and controversial essay, Make Way for Winged Arrows, More Wings, she talked about the qualities of soul needed to create an emancipated world, not least in the world of sexual love, which she, as you know, very controversially, considered the area, intimate relations between people, the area where we can best see both human possibility and human failing. These qualities of soul, she said, included sympathetic, these are her words, sympathetic feelings of sensitivity, compassion and empathy for the personality of the other, something men rarely feel, she thought. But these, she notes, however good and however you can find them in the lives of the present, these are qualities still born in the present. They are not yet the future, however wonderful they might be. And the future, she says, is beyond our capacity to understand, to imagine, uh, to, to know. Uh, and her words, which you see here now, in the realized communist society, love, winged eros, will it appear in a different, transfigured form, completely unknown to us. Even the boldest fantasy is incapable of imagining what it will look like. 
The only thing she was certain about was that the spirit of revolutionary solidarity and sympathy and love will, and things that she couldn't yet imagine, will cause to grow on the wings of Eros, her words, new feathers of never-before-seen beauty. Some, some years later, when she's reflecting on what she accomplished and realized that she didn't accomplish much in the end, in the outcomes, she argued that, you know, in revolutionary struggle, the important thing is not her word, accomplishment. Because if nothing was produced besides words and dreams and inspirations and impulses, these would, her words, come to be a historical example and help others move ahead. In other words, it was the leap, not the landing, that was the essence of revolution and not an end either. Really quickly, I think I have a little bit of time. Do I have a little bit of time? Uh, I want to include with one last example and then draw this together. Uh, one last vision of time and wings in the Russian Revolution, of, uh, uh, and that is of the poet uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky. Um, there he is. <laughs> Probably no poet, maybe nobody who wrote in words, was more determined to, uh, to borrow Benjamin's phrase, blast open the continuum of history, quite literally, than Mayakovsky. In fact, at one point he declared that commercial, as a futurist, that commercial publishers refused to print all those books that futurists were writing because, in Mayakovsky's word, the capitalist nose smelled dynamiters on us. And what they wanted to dynamite most, especially Mayakovsky, was time. The everyday given time of the present. Mayakovsky, in his early pre-revolutionary wartime poems, constantly berated the old temporality uh, as a, these are some of his phrases, a lame icon dauber, dauber uh, an, a groveling reptile, a digging mole, an old woman, a chain, a fetter, uh, an avalanche that buries possibility. This is Benjamin's continuum. We can, of course, read this sort of attack on traditional temporality as a classic critical negation of the darkness of the lived moment, in Bloch's phrase. Mayakovsky was much more colorful, he's a poet after all, and simply referred to the present as the shit of the present. But this critique was entwined with a utopian impulse to, again borrowing from Bloch, venture beyond the darkness uh, of the now, to leap into the free air and one might say, to use his metaphor, the less stinky air of possibility of openness. To give just one example, uh, and then turn to 1917, in uh, Mayakovsky's epic poem of 1916, which he called Chilevyek, uh, simply man or person, there's a poet named Vladimir Mayakovsky. I, I won't go into all the reasons Mayakovsky appears in his own poems as this sort of ideal liberating figure. It's not him. One might just say, it's not Mayakovsky who lives in this time, this world. It's Mayakovsky as Mayakovsky wasn't yet, but could be a sort of a, a <coughs> radical, salvational figure. This Mayakovsky is shackled and captive in a world where money is king uh, and in this foaming sea, as he describes it, of money, everything good is drowned. Geniuses, hens, horses, violins, all of it drowned. And our protagonist, Mayakovsky, escapes from this dark, shitty world uh, of things, of money, of, of narrowness, of present time, by thinking about suicide. And just thinking about suicide causes him to elevate off the earth, to fly up to heaven without wings.
Uh, and of course, people are walking down the street saying, oh my god, Mayakovsky's on his way to heaven. Uh, look at that. And they're all like shocked and inspired, and, and it has a sort of powerful effect. He comes back to Earth thousands of years later. He figures thousands of years, surely the world will be made new by then, but nothing has changed. The passage of time brought nothing new. And then comes 1917. Mayakovsky is elated. He believes that the old time really had been shattered. Suddenly, he wrote, unexpectedly, the thousand-year-old before had been blown to bits. Suddenly, it seemed possible, he wrote, and thank you, Vladimir Volodya. He's using the metaphor I've been harping on. It, as you can see in this longer quote, suddenly it became possible to leap into the future, uh, or at least it was the moment to do so. But the old time refused to let go. Uh, for Mayakovsky and for others, one answer was more violence. Really use dynamite. Uh, for him, it's just word dynamite. For others, it was much more powerful. In 1919, you can see a phrase here. He argues, you know, uh, we can't just fantasize about the new order. We have to dynamite the old. Scorch, burn, cut, raise. If it's, an old, if it's old, kill it. We must kick down the fence of time. But the fence wouldn't fall. Uh, although it did, as he says in 1920, become covered in slime. In response, Mayakovsky would continue to dream, I won't go into detail on these things, continue to dream of flight to the new. Uh, here you see his 1919 design for a scene of flight to the promised land for his play Mystery Bouffe, his, this, the later version of it, the 1919, cover of his book The Flying Proletarian, where every worker has wigs. To be sure, the wings are air, little private airplanes, but it's still the sort of same vision of flight above the bounds of the now. And yet the fence of time, to use his metaphor, stood higher than revolutionaries could leap, or fly, or kick, or explode. Worse, uh, as time passed, doors of possibility closed, wings were clipped, angels suppressed, and of course, as you know, in 1930, Mayakovsky actually committed suicide and declared famously in his note, love's boat, now it's a boat, love's boat has crashed against the everyday, against everyday life, against bleat. Uh, and as it's been argued by many others who know more about Mayakovsky by far than I, love meant, of course, personal things to him in his own life, but it can also be seen as a marker of those ideals and possibilities which have crashed against the customary everyday world of reality, of time as given. Now, finally, considering how things turned out, it's easy, frankly, rational to be depressed, as many, many people at the time were, uh, to believe that the only smart way, the only wise, true view of existence, of human existence, of history, of time, was a melancholy one that recognized that all of our longings for the new, for freedom, for justice, for happiness, are just an illusion in a world of inevitable ruin and loss where the scales truly are weighted enormously in favor of disaster, where history keeps piling wreckage and hurling it at our feet. But perhaps the real illusion, the Philistine illusion anyway, in Trotsky's term, is to believe however hard it is to, to uh, think otherwise, to believe that the way things turned out in the past were the only possible way they could have turned out. 
And that, of course, comments about the future as well. Human life is simply too contingent and unpredictable for outcomes to be the only explanation of what was possible. So I'll end with one last metaphor. It's sort of appropriate to keep throwing all these metaphors. You see, they were using metaphors all the time. Metaphors, I'm not a literary scholar, so others will, will tell me I, I'm over simple or miss the boat uh, or the airplane. Uh, metaphors are something we grab onto when, it's, when ordinary descriptions of simple reality as it is don't seem to be enough, when it doesn't explain the full richness of human experience. Uh, indeed, some literary scholars have described metaphors as fundamentally conceptual leaps. And this metaphor, whoops, comes from, this, it's this one, uh, is again from Walter Benjamin, the very same 1940 thesis, uh, his concept of history. I think this also captures another dimension. All of these are in the same piece. Uh, and the meaning of 1917, which you can see the quote there. Marx says that revolutions are the locomotive of world history. But perhaps it's quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by the passengers on this train, namely the human race, to activate the emergency brake. And one might say, open the door, leap off, and venture outside, if only for a moment. That was Mark Steinberg, a professor of Russian history at the University of Illinois, and the author of many wonderful books on Russian history, including Proletarian Imagination, Self, Modernity, and the Sacred in Russia, 1910 to 1925, Voices of Revolution, 1917, Petersburg Fend Siekel, and with Nicholas Razanovsky, A History of Russia, now in its eighth edition. His most recent book is The Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.